0: Let me invite you in your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah chapter number 32. I want to read a passage here that I think would uh, be beneficial for us as we just briefly uh, briefly look at this particular subject and um, bring it to our attention. Jeremiah 32, I want to read verse 36 down through verse number 44. Jeremiah 32, 36 down through verse 44, if I had to title this devotional, I would Call it God Can Bring Revival. God can bring uh, revival, and he often has, and I believe he's not done doing that. And so let's look at an, an account with Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, I think we've beneficial. Verse 36 of Jeremiah 32, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries of which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying it is a desolation. Without man or beast, it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. You know, we often hear this statement that we need revival. We often uh, talk about revival when we have set dates on our calendar for revival services. That's usually when uh, the subject of revival comes to our minds and when we're thinking about it. And we tend to pray for revival when we know that those services are coming up on us, right? That's kind of when we focus in and we pray for revival because we have services that we've planned or or a conference that we've planned or something of that nature. But often we limit the focus of our need to revival to only those special times. There is the great need for revival throughout the year. Throughout each month, week to week, there is this great need of revival. Now, revival is not necessarily something that we can plan, since it is of God's sovereign grace to bestow it when He desires to do so. But just as with anything in God's sovereignty, that is His prerogative. What is the prerogative of His people? The prerogative of His people is to pray and to obey and to seek His power and to seek His will to be done. And I believe our desire ought to be always for revival to permeate his people and his churches. And so a month or so ago, some fellow brothers in Christ, pastors and local churches we know, we're acquainted with, they uh, put out to encourage other local churches to engage in this very matter, to uh, plan to pray on this particular day specifically for this need of revival. And I thought it a worthy thing and needed endeavor for us in our own church to participate uh, with our fellow sister churches in this for tonight to pray for this specific need, uh, praying together for revival. And I think maybe some may think, well, this is kind of random, or maybe it's unnecessary. Well, I think it's very necessary as we look at the landscape of Christianity, uh, especially in our own nation, in our own our own country. Uh, we, we We look not very hard, and we see a lot of carnality. We see a lot of worldliness, a lot of carelessness, a lot of comfort, and uh, you think about even your own Christian life. I think of my Christian life, because when it really comes down to revival, I have to consider me, because I'm the one that needs revived, as well as every individual Christian, because local churches are made up of what? Individual Christians. And so it really is about a personal matter. Revival is a personal matter, something from the Christian with God in between them, and then it applies to the local church as well. And so we think about even our own local church. Are we at Lee Creek ever at a place where we don't need growth, we don't need repentance, where we've reached the limit to where we're just, all right, we're good? We're never going to reach that kind of spot, will we? We're in need of revival in various ways, and so we have to recognize that for our own selves. And so, before we pray tonight, I want to just turn our attention to Scripture briefly and uh, recall some truth about this reality that God can bring revival, because when we think about revival, often we, we may think that, well, that's, sure, God, I'm sure He could do that, but we've probably never seen it, and so therefore we maybe think, well, we, it's not likely, Right? Uh, maybe that's that's the mindset when we think of revival, that uh, is it something that really is viable, something that could come to pass? Well, I think with, when we consider the power of God and His providence, there's no doubt in my mind that God can bring revival. I don't have any doubt in that at all. And so I want to point out just a couple things here tonight. And the first one is this, that God has brought revival in the past. He has brought revival in the past. We've Seen that we can look at biblical examples of revival, we can look at examples in history, throughout church history. God is a God that does bring revival, and I'm thankful for that. But we think about Israel for a moment. Israel in this text, what's their condition? Well, they've been in rebellion, and they're going into captivity. God has brought his chastising hand of judgment on them through Babylon. And so they've invaded, and they've carried off captives, and they're destroying the city. They're going to destroy the temple. And, and, uh, and, and so Jerusalem becomes basically just a desolate place, a place that would have been utterly depressing for the Jews to see because it's no longer what it used to be in its glory under David and Solomon and godly kings that followed after him as they ought to have. But we're familiar with the people of Israel, and the people of Israel were God's chosen people, his called out people, his consecrated people that he uh, pulled out of the world unto himself for his glory, and he gave them his law and his word to follow, and the law and the word is not only for his glory, but it's for their good, right? You see, what God commands us in Scripture, it's not just as if uh, just do this because just to do it, it's for your good. Living according to God's will and His word, it is always for our good, but firstly for His glory. But we read how that they had departed from the Lord. They, they went off into idolatry. And early in this chapter, he, he spells out some of this. If you look at verse 30 down through verse 35 for a moment, just briefly notice that he says, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. The city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin." So what's interesting is that you read this passage and you see the evil that Israel's encompassed in, right? They've forsaken the law of God, there's a generation that has risen from their youth where they've, they've done nothing but evil, they've not been following Him, they're in idolatry and, and they've provoked God to anger. And only God knows, you know, who, who, who of them maybe had true conversion who didn't. Just because they were an Israelite didn't mean that they were converted, if you will. Uh, Not all of Israel are true Israel, those who are of faith. Uh, So there are many who blended in 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 the community of the Israelites. But judgment came because God's people forsook him. And they became godless like other nations and cultures, while at the same time holding on to the name of Yahweh. Holding on to his name, but not his word. And this is why God sent Babylon. But that brings me to where we see in our text. You come to verse 36 we see Israel's promise of restoration and piety. How that God has promised that even though he's bringing judgment on them for this evil, there's a further end purpose to it. And that further end purpose to it is what we would call revival. He is going to bring them back to where they ought to be physically and spiritually. And, and And I love how this plays out through this. You notice how God specifically says in this text, He says, I will gather them. They shall be my people. I will make in them an everlasting covenant. I will put the fear of God in their hearts that they may not turn from me. If anything anything spells sovereign grace, it's that right there. God says, I will do this. I'm going to work in their hearts and turn them to me. They will be my people. I will be their God. And so this is his his sovereign prerogative of he's going to bring them back because he's not brought Babylon in just to eradicate them permanently, right? God has a covenant with his chosen people. And so he is doing this to purge them, number one, but also to purify them and bring them about to where they ought to have been because in their stubborn will they had forsaken God. They had left off the word of God, and they had gone away way that uh, uh, they ought not to have gone. And so uh, we think about that concept, this reality of revival. We may say, well, I just don't know if that can happen. You know, you look at Israel in their day. Could they, imagine being an Israelite and seeing Jerusalem as it was, devastated, the people carried away, people killed. Your hope would have been struck, struck into your core, Right. Could this ever be brought back? Could we ever be actually the people of God again as we ought to have been? Jeremiah's shoes for a minute. Jeremiah is the faithful one in this text, right? He's the one who's preaching despite his persecution. Looking at it from a human standpoint, we think, I don't know that this could ever happen. But this is where I love how, how even in, earlier in this text, you look at verse 26, God says to Jeremiah, or verse 27, he says, behold, I'm the Lord the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? So, so is it too hard for God to save sinners and regenerate their hearts and give them a new heart? No. Is it, is it too hard for God to bring revival to his churches in the midst of great corruption and, a, and an evil culture? No, it's not. It's not too hard for him. We could apply that to so many things. But the point here is that we are praying and seeking him for this, just as the psalmist did in Psalm 85 in verse 6, where he says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? So looking at Israel, just as an example, I think about us today, that God can bring revival in this present. And I point this out, that I believe this. I believe our churches do need revival. I don't say that just as, that's just a spiritual statement we ought to say, and we recognize I believe we really do need revival. Our churches do need revival, especially in this nation. You say, why? Well, as we look at the landscape of churches, churches are too easily conformed to the world around them. We're too easily conformed to the culture, too conformed to uh, uh, the way the world around us thinks. And what we find is that the way the world around us thinks, it slowly permeates inside the church. And then before you know it, the church is more like the world then they all, they're not even going to recognize that. We can't recognize it, right? There's a reason Paul urged the church in Rome, in Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why did he say that? Because we're prone to conformity. We're prone to pattern after what's around us. So the church needs reformation and revival in this. The church, in many ways, has compromised the plain teachings of Scripture, the gospel today is very much watered down, isn't it? Repentance is very much lacking in the gospel and in the church. The nature and attributes of God, they are diminished. Only some of his attributes are preached and not all of them. We think about the reality of hell. It's not an eternity to be feared anymore. There's no fear of that. Holiness is somewhat disconnected from salvation. Now, not in the sense that holiness is salvation, but salvation always brings holiness. There's a development there, a growth, a sanctification. The church has often become a place of entertainment and feel-good speeches. Church structure and order has been forsaken. A lot of the charismatic stuff and women pastors being pushed into Baptist churches and just the plain teachings of the Bible have been neglected in a wide variety of ways. And it is detrimental. And I think the church largely has grown very comfortable in its state of Christianity. We are content with where we are in our Christian life and in our church life, and we don't really see a need for further development and growth and fervor for Christ. Let me read one example of this in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me. Revelation chapter 3, we're almost done. I tried my best to make this a very, very short devotion, but you know how preachers are, right? It's about like asking me to walk on water. I can't hardly do that. Revelation 3, I want you to, I want you to see this. I want to just make sure we have time for prayer, because that's the, that's the point. And I, Bob brought this up to me before church, and I 100% agree. I think that this is one of the weak spots of the church, prayer. It's neglected. It's put off. It's not engaged in like it ought to be in the, in the church. And so uh, look, at, look at Revelation 3. We, we've, we've, uh, we're we've aware about these seven churches and their letters, but this one sticks out to me in regards to this subject, the church of Laodicea. Jesus says to them, verse 15, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth for you say this is the point I want you to see you say them they say about themselves I am rich I have prospered and I have need I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched pitiful pitiful pitiable poor blind and naked rebuking this church, but also showing them the way of repentance in this church. But what do you notice is wrong in this church? They're lukewarm. And why are they lukewarm? Because they think they're just fine as they are. They say, oh, I, am, I am wealthy, and I am profitable, and I am this, and I am that. When Jesus says, you're not seeing you as you really are. You're poor and blind and pitiful and naked. They're in great need. And I believe the church in America is in great need very much so. We're in great need. We need repentance. We need to recognize ourselves. And so with that, revival needs to be sought by us. And so we think about this for a moment as we transition. On what basis should we pray for God to revive us? I mean, after all, we're not, we're not ancient Israel with some kind of promise of being in a specific land with a specific city, are we? We're not, we're not given that particular kind of a promise. What basis do we have for seeking God to bring revival to us. The reason we ought to seek God for revival is because we are the people of God. We are the people of God. And the people of God under the new covenant have a specific purpose. They have a specific promise and they have a specific power given to them. God has promised sanctification in his people. It's something that is part of who we are in Christ he, if Paul said it this way in Philippians one six. He said, "I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." That good work he began in us—it's something that's ongoing. He is sanctifying us, and what we ought to recognize is our own need of sanctification. I recognize it quite often. A lot of times when I think that I'm doing pretty good, I realize I'm not doing as good as I thought I was. We need sanctification. God has purposed the endurance of his church and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ through her. You understand, we have a promise in this age in which Jesus said about his church, the gates of hell would not prevail against her. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is on the defensive. It means she's on the offensive. She marches forward, charging through the gates of hell, pushing them backwards. God's given the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel to his church turn the world upside down. Acts 1.8, he told his apostles, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, it's God's people who are victorious, and the church understand when we lose sight of who we are and why we're here, that is great evidence of our need for revival. And so this. This time we're going to look at is, is, is a time to just band together and pray together this evening, and for revival, we need to beseech God Almighty, because He is the source of revival. It's not in us, it's in Him. It's in Him. He's the Lord who can do all things. He can set our hearts aflame afresh with a deep love for Jesus and a close walk with Him. That's what we ought to want. We ought to desire that, let's seek Him on behalf of our own Christian life, on behalf of this local church, which we love and we want to prosper and be fruitful. And on behalf on behalf of our immediate community and our nation, we have so much that we need to pray for in regards to revival.